When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. Dun, 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 dun. And welcome to the Decibel Geek Podcast. My name is Aaron Camaro, joined as always by my good friend Chris Sinzak, and we're ready to bring you 1981 Part 2. I'm going to forget you just did that. <laughs> you can forget it for now, but you know it's coming back up later. I know. That's what a bunch of you are probably listening for. Yeah, because you can't talk about 1981 without talking about Kiss music from the Elder. Not if you're the Decibel Geek podcast, anyway. You guys know that. And we're only going to talk about music from the Elder today, just, <laughs> just so you know. Well, you know, if you want a full episode <laughs> of music from the Elder, you can become a, a Decibel Geek VIP and be, go on over to Patreon. And mm-hmm. we just recorded a full-on episode of the Torpedo Dudes dedicated entirely mm-hmm. to music from the Elder. That's a pretty fun conversation. It is pretty fun. Very loose. We even sing. <laughs> don't let that stop you from listening though no that's yeah, yeah. don't tell them that yeah. all right so before we get back into the business because we took care of 81 the first part of the year last year or last week mm-hmm. and uh now this week we're going to take care of part two but before we do we got to take care of business and the business at hand are our reviews and recommendations so let's start out with a sweet old itunes review says right here two stars oh this never better not be another bot Let's see what it says. All right, it's it's entitled Disappointing. Mm. Oh, man. I don't like this one. Yeah. Okay, um, yeah, it's from the USA. It's a, It doesn't really say who it's from, but it goes a little something like this. Great idea, solid content, but horrible audio quality. What? Worst sounding podcast I've heard anywhere. Wow. That kind of matters, given the topic. Hmm. I don't know, man. We put a lot of work into making sure this all sounds good. What episode good. did you listen to? Episode, like, maybe one of the early ones or something. Oh, okay. The ones where it was just me. Maybe, see, it was just starting out. It was just Chris. But just stick around because Damn. I'll be joining the show soon, and everything's going to pick up, including the audio quality. Well, Jesus. But that ain't got nothing to do it's with bash me. bash session. We got this this sweet little soundboard over here, and we got this nice laptop, and we got, you can't go wrong with the old Sure mics, you know, we're, yeah. we're old school rock and rollers, so we go with the old well, Sure mics. The user who left it is called KM11474578996621, so that's gotta, it be, is a, a, bot. That's gotta be a robot. I knew it. Damn it. Either that or it's the most 
unimaginative name for an iTunes username. Can you imagine what the password must be to something like that? Golly. It's like in Swahili or some shit. All right. So let's go on to a Facebook recommendation. Things better than that. Things can only go up from there, right? All right. This one comes to us from James Eric Puckett. It's a recommendation on Facebook for the Decibel Geek Podcast. It says it's a great podcast to keep abreast of current news in rock and metal. Well, that works. Maybe he's talking about the website more. What do you mean? Well, I mean, we do our new noise episodes once in a while, but otherwise, I mean, we're, we're talking about 1981. That's not too current. It's current if you're, you know, 100 years old or something. <laughs> I feel 100 years old, but I was only six in 1981. He said the word abreast. <laughs> 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 All right, so we've been having a lot of fun, you know, as we got to always remind you, these are a lot of hard work, but we, do, we know that <laughs> yeah, people Baco. appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but the people that really appreciated it, especially last week, are the people that went out and shared it and yes. retweeted it. These are our Geeks of the Week. All you got to do is share it and retweet it, yeah. you know, and you can become one of these honorable people. Yeah, Geeks of the Week this week are Mike Tyler, Matt Ashcraft, Paul Kane, Mike Purnell, Brad Kalmanson, Todd Cunningham. Ray Coon, Steve Wright, James McElhenney, Adam Cox, Simon Cat, Victor Ruiz, Joseph Ciambelli, Wayne Cross, Shane Aber, Otto Erling Gregerson, Dave Koska, Joe Royland, Sit and Spin with Joe, Greg York, Alex Michael from Shameless shared it. Oh, right on. Jay, he was really happy we covered the DeLorean. He's a big DeLorean fan. That guy is pretty cool. Uh, Jay Sabluski, James West, Rock and Ron Runyon, Alex Ferenc, David Glenn, Kenneth Roy, Brant Cattell, Shay Hargett, Bill Elam, Anna Maria, JJ Mack, Coxie, Ages of Rock Podcast, David Cathy. Tom Smoke, Christopher Stoke, Cobras and Fire, Ernesto Aguiar, Doug the Devil, Jeff Mendenhall, Eladio, Twisted Kister, and of course, the, the Mooger Fooger. Yes, indeed. Those are our friends. They're out there. All you got to do is share it, retweet it. Like I said, you can become a Geek of the Week. We'll read your name at the top of the show. Don't skip past it. Listen to it. These are important people, and we love to honor them because they're out there helping us out. Heard from a few people that they do listen to the intro. Yeah, so nice. We're very happy Good. for that. We're not Good wasting deal. our breath. The people that share it and retweet it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's my name again. I'm awesome. You uh, are awesome. We'll take it any way we can get it. You want to become even more awesome like we said we just recorded a big old episode of torpedo dudes mm-hmm. dedicated entirely to kiss's music from the elder that's our kiss podcast yes. but it's only available to our decibel geek vips we're on episode two yeah you can get into that as cheap as a dollar yeah and we've also just recorded a new episode of the chris and aaron show yep. we've got hundreds and hundreds of hours of the chris and aaron show there's a lot of funny stuff in there so oh yeah you know you guys are welcome to all that back audio you know so like we said you know you catch up yeah, I yeah. know how it is. You get a favorite podcast and you binge listen to it and mm-hmm. you you get to where now you're caught up, you know, and where you were listening to it nonstop was freaking awesome. But now you're at the end. Now you got to wait every single week, you yeah. know, every single week in four <laughs> <ten> days. days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, and on the uh, on the um, Chris and Aaron show, I gave my recent review of a strut show that I oh, yeah, that's this right. past week. It was pretty wild. That. Yeah, pretty cool. And some parenting issues I've had. <laughs> well, so, yeah. See, we talk about a little everything. bit of everything on the Chris and Aaron show. You know, it's not all about rock and roll we've got real lives too so we we talk about a little bit of everything on there so that it makes it a lot of fun so if you mm-hmm. want to become a decibel geek vip and get yourself a whole lot of extra audio to listen to maybe you are caught up and you don't want to wait week to week to week to week you mm-hmm. want to get it all right now there's plenty of it for you to keep you busy and keep your ears happy yeah and uh it's all available to you now at patreon.com just look up decibel geek find your level of commitment and jump on in and yeah. get on in that facebook page because that's our exclusive facebook page it's only for for the VIPs. Right. I like that. All right. We ready to jump into July on for nineteen eighty. All right. Second part of the year. Here we go. All right. 
So what do you got? You got some more prices for us? Yeah. Um, the cost of an IBM personal computer was a cheap $1,565 in 1981. Wow. Jesus. Uh, as you heard in the commercial last week, a video disc player, which yeah. you can't even get anymore, no. was uh, $500 at the time. Oh, man. The poor people that bought those. Um, and the uh, the thing that would make you the envy of all your entire neighborhood, the Atari 2600 was $130 and games were 25 I know. That's wild to think back how expensive that was. And you mm-hmm. think about, you know, the... The sacrifices your parents made may have made to, you know, get you something like that. I had the Atari Twenty Six Hundred and a handful of games, you know, and then I look back and realize, wow, that was a lot of money, you know. And then think, well, back in eighty one, that was really a lot of money. It was. I guess my parents really did love me after all. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we'll get into July. You want to take the first news story? Sure. Yeah, right in early July. So the Hyatt Regency walkway collapse takes place at the Hyatt Regency. Uh, Kansas City Hotel in Missouri, and uh, two walkways, one's directly above the other one, they collapse onto a tea dance being held in the hotel's lobby. And so you got this crushing effect yeah. of all these things coming down, and the falling walkways killed, uh, they killed 114 people and injured 216. It was the deadliest structural collapse in U.S. history until the collapse of the World Trade Centers 20 years later. And I used to live in Kansas City, and I remember people talking about when it happened. Like, yeah. it, was a, it was a huge deal. And, you know, that hotel's still there. I've walked through it. So let's get into some music. Let's say one rock band that didn't seem to be affected by the ever-changing trends of the early 80s was Foreigner. Coming off the heels of the successful Head Games album, they released four on July 2nd and continued their climb. Several singles from the album raced up the charts, including Urgent, Waiting for a Girl Like You, and Jukebox Hero. But it also features several great deep cuts, such as the opener, Nightlife. Probably no foreigner is still around today, albeit with a much different lineup. Guitarist Mick Jones makes occasional appearances, and the band's mostly anchored by former Hurricane singer Kelly Hansen and former Dock and bassist Jeff Pilson. Yeah, that's pretty wild to think. You know, it wasn't too long before '81 where like punk rock was ruling the world, and Foreigner was one of the bands that they you know lashed out against like the punk rock bands really hated foreigner mm-hmm. but they survived all that and are they still did. killing it in 81 yeah they were a big radio band at that time yeah and uh while they became known as a syrupy sweet aor hit maker later on in 1981 def leppard was still part of the new wave of british heavy metal whether they want to admit to it or not yeah they were high and dry is released on july 11th it would be guitarist pete willis's swan song with the band and the first with robert john mutt lang in the producer chair 
High and Dry would feature much bigger production than On Through the Night and is loaded with killer tracks such as Mirror Mirror, Let It Go, and Lady Strange. peak at number 38 in America, but we know that they would shatter that number two years later with the release of Pyromania. Yeah, that's right. Great stuff, that early Def Leppard. I love it. Yeah, they had a they had a great chemistry in those days, and I know they went away from they went definitely more radio-friendly in the future, but yeah. Uh, yeah, those early albums were great. I love that stuff. So, in 1968, the Beatles formed Apple Core Licensed in formerly known as Apple. So in 1981, a suit was settled with Apple Computers with the payment of $80,000 to Apple Corps. And as a condition of the settlement, Apple Computer agrees to stay out of the music business. Yeah. What happened to that? Uh, it changed a few years later with the invention of the iPod. Yeah, they're all in it now. <laughs> now which, they they know, pretty much own music now. Not necessarily a bad thing because it's all so available to everybody. Yeah. And they're, you know... Apple's a little better because at least the artists are getting paid. Yeah. You know, so. so you can support Apple, I think. So in uh, 1981, the Ramones were in a bit of a free fall. Previous efforts to land a hit had culminated with the lack of success of 1980s into the century. An album produced by hitmaker Phil Spector that still failed to break through the barrier of commercial success. Mm-hmm. While other underground New York peers had broken through, such as Blondie and the Talking Heads, the Ramones couldn't seem to catch a break. Pleasant Dreams is released on July 20th. The album featured a slicker production due to the label bringing in Graham Gouldman from 10CC to produce. Oh, wow. They didn't want him, but the label forced it. They had two very different bands. Yeah. In my opinion, it's a crime that this album bombed as it contains some of my favorite Ramon songs, such as Season Sensation, We Want the Airwaves, and The KKK Took My Baby Away. She went away for the holidays, said she's going to NA. She never got that, she never got that. Get, get, get. 
you don't know the history of the band, it's long been rumored that Joey wrote this song about Johnny stealing his girlfriend, but that's uh, an unconfirmed rumor. Wow. But just listen to the lyrics. You'll kind of you'll kind of get it. That's harsh. <laughs> <laughs> well, on July 16th, the music world lost a great storyteller, Harry Chapin. The singer-songwriter with such hits as Cats in the Cradle and Taxi died in an auto accident on Long Island Expressway. There's multiple theories about what happened, but many think he suffered a heart attack while driving. He went out like the macho man. Yeah. Slowed down and got in the center lane before drifting back in front of a semi, and the truck couldn't stop in time and plowed into his car, causing it to burst into flames. Attempts to revive him at the hospital were unsuccessful. All right, well, while bands like Iron Maiden and Tigers of Pantang were getting much of the critical praise from the music press in 81, there were other bands still doing great work. One of those bands was Demon. Demon was formed in 1979 in Leek, Staffordshire, England, and signed with Carrere Records. In 1981, they released their debut album, Night of the Demon. Forge on until 92 before splitting up, but the band would reform with new members joining original member Dave Hill in 2000, and they're still active today. Oh, wow. That's cool. I'll check out more Demon. That's some good stuff there. Uh, one band that shouldn't be a mystery to KISS fans or Decibel Geek listeners is New England. Oh, yeah. As you've heard on this show from drummer Hirsch Gardner, the band's debut album was produced by Paul Stanley, and they opened for KISS on parts of the Dynasty Tour. What you may not know is that they released an album in 1981. Walking Wild came out in July. Produced by Todd Rundgren, the album is loaded with ELO and Beatles-influenced rockers, including Holdin' Out On Me. all-terrain armored transport from Kenner. Batteries not included. Action figures each sold separately. You can make Adat walk. Its legs are big enough to crush obstacles. 
You can move Adat's head and pretend to scan for rebels. Adat has a cockpit for Imperial Commander and Adat Driver and laser machine guns. When you push a button to fire the laser cannons, you activate battle lights and sounds. There's even a troop compartment. New Adat from Kenner's Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back Collection. Hawk. Free-spirited. Riding on the wind. Hawk. Soaring to heights no other can reach. Now, for the man who reaches higher, we've captured that high-flying feeling in a new man's fragrance. Hawk. Challenging. Exhilarating. Now, for the man who reaches higher, Hawk. By Menon. Jesse is a friend. Yeah, I know he's been a good friend of mine. Ah, jeez, what is this? <laughs> this is awful. In 1981, all the girls were crazy about Richard Lewis Springthorpe, better known as Rick Springfield. He was a dual threat as a popular actor on General Hospital, as oh, well yeah. as hitting the charts in 1981 with this song, Jesse's Girl. Rick did more acting over the next few years, but to this day remains a popular draw on the touring circuit. If you're into MILFs, attend one of his shows. Yeah, totally. That's wild. I mean... Who would thought that guy would still be around after all these years? But he, he, packs he was, and he was, and he does, yeah. and he was popular as hell then. He's popular as hell now. Yeah, Billy Hardaway, that one's for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you know, as we creep closer to the end of the year now, because we're in the second half, we, you know, we got to break off and talk about things. You know, so Christmas is coming up. People are starting to think about Christmas shopping. So, so what are some of the biggest toys in 1981? Well, the arcade games, you know, Donkey Kong, the Galaga, the Frogger, the, mm-hmm. the little handheld ones. That's a big those. thing in 1981. Um, there was Western Barbie was a big seller and Sport and Shave Ken. This was pretty interesting. It come with a little marker so a little girl could draw a little stubble on Ken. And then you use like a sponge razor and it would take it off. You know too much about it. I this. saw it in a commercial oh, when I was looking yeah. up stuff. Okay, we'll go. Uh, right along those lines, My Pretty Pony mm. was the big thing. Do you remember the Munchie Cheese? Munchie Cheese, yeah. Munchie Cheese up in the trees. Yeah, I had a friend that had like a Brillo pad haircut and he used to say he looked like a munchie. So. <laughs> Way up in the trees. <laughs> uh, Dukes of Hazard figures in the General Lee. Yes. That sounds like I a lot of fun. I had a Dukes of Hazard banjo. Nice. Yeah, very nice. redneck. Uh, matchbox sets are a big thing in 1981. The Mattel Mastercaster, that's the one that had the little wax things, and you could make your own little Hot Wheels cars. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the Clash of the Titan figures are mm-hmm. a big thing because that was a big movie of the time. The Jaws game. The Jaws, remember, it's a plastic, it's like a, it's like a a board, like, like a board game, I guess, but it's plastic, it's got Jaws on it, that was a big seller Mm. in 1981. The other big thing in 1981, this was about the hugest thing out there, especially for girls, was Strawberry Shortcake. Mm -hmm. That was massive. Yeah. Like, it was everywhere. But again, my love affair with redheads back then. (laughs) Didn't they smell? Like, each one had its own smell to it? I mean, I heard they did. I don't know. Well, here's something we definitely know a lot more about, and that's the uh, 1981 Empire Strikes Back action figures and accessories. Yeah, it's not a doll. It's an action figure. you damn right it's an action figure. So those were the big toys of 1981. That brings back memories. Shoot, yeah. Not the strawberry shortcake. <laughs> or the sport and shave can. So uh, we're into August, and on Saturday, August 1st, at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time, MTV launched with the words, Ladies and Gentlemen, Rock and Roll, spoken by John Lack and played over footage 
of the first space shuttle launch countdown of Columbia, which took place earlier that year, and of the launch of Apollo 11. Those words were immediately followed by the original MTV theme song. Everybody knows that. Dun, 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 dun. Um, that's free. <laughs> I got sued for that. Uh, a crunching rock tune composed by Jonathan Ellis Sand and John Peterson, and the music world would be changed forever or for the next 15 years, and then it would totally go to shit. Right. Yeah. But there's no denying the effect that MTV had on music because all of a sudden the landscape changes. You know, MTV, these music videos become so important to bands that, you know, before that, other than Kiss, you didn't have to look a certain way. Right. You know, you could get by on your songs alone. Suddenly, you know, like old bands are going, Oh wow! You know we gotta make videos, and some yeah. bands like Heart are gonna adapt to that perfectly. Mm-hmm. Tom Petty's gonna adapt to that perfectly. Yeah. Other bands, not so much. Molly Hatchet, it's over. Yeah, it's over for Molly Hatchet <laughs> and Thirty Eight Special. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a crazy time, but yeah, MTV becomes so important. Mm-hmm. All right. Also in eighty one in August, the Violent Femmes are discovered by members of the Pretenders busking outside of a Milwaukee venue, and they are invited in to play a ten minute acoustic set as a second opening act at the Pretenders show that night. Isn't that the dream? That's an amazing way to get discovered. You know, you're you're playing outside of a bar somewhere. Mm-hmm. You're just out there playing for change, and then the band comes through and goes, "How would you guys like to come up on stage with us?" That's wild. That's good old Wisconsin ingenuity right yeah. there. I like that. <laughs> love the Violent Femmes. It's the weirdest band I love. Yep. And uh, August of 81 sees the release of a great album from a project featuring two powerhouses of 70s rock. Brad Whitford of Aerosmith and Derek St. Holmes for the Ted Nugent Band put together one of the most solid releases of this time period. Whitford St. Holmes did not get the success it needed to sustain itself, and Brad would return to Aerosmith and Derek to Ted Nugent down the line. You can hear a great second album of their reunion release in 2016. Yeah, that was cool. I was really excited when they got back together for that because this is kind of a forgotten album from '81 Very because much. it's, but it's it's good. You know, it's definitely worth revisiting. Definitely for sure. So on 
August 24th in 1981, Mark David Chapman is sentenced to 20 years to life for the murder of John Lennon, a founding member of the Beatles, one of the most successful bands in the history of pop music. Chapman initially entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. However, he later decided to drop the insanity defense and plead guilty to second-degree murder. At his sentencing hearing, Chapman read from The Catcher in the Rye. That's weird. That's the book that kind of inspired him to do the murder. That's weird. His, uh, all his requests for parole have been denied, and he continues to serve time at New York's Attica State Prison. i got to think, if he is ever let out, some crazy Beatles fan will kill him. I wouldn't be and surprised. And that's probably the reason why they keep him locked up. Yeah. So going to September... And after, after having canceled gigs due to his inability and at times lack of desire to perform, which had resulted from co- cocaine and amphetamine abuse and heavy drinking, Iron Maiden fires singer Paul Diano. They decided that to progress, they would have to find a singer capable of withstanding the rigors of being on tour. They found that replacement in former Samson frontman Bruce Dickinson. Diano's last show with the band was on September 10th at the Oddfellows Mansion in Copenhagen, Denmark. Bruce would be announced as the new singer on September 26th. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit last week. It wasn't that Paul Diano was a, a sucky singer, and it wasn't that he wasn't a great frontman or he wasn't a good fit for Iron Maiden. But as we said, after that, that first big tour they went on where it was like, all those days in a row, you know, mm-hmm. for all of that whole time. And he just cracked. He just couldn't yeah. take it. You know, it's, it's pills to get up, pills to go to sleep, you know. And then your lifestyle, It's it, it takes something special. you got to be wired for it. To go on the road like yeah. that and stay on the road for so long and be gone. Yeah. Uh, last I heard, Paul Diano's not doing well health-wise. Yeah. So, it's, uh, so Iron Maiden says, finds the lead singer from Samson and says, Ditch all the white spandex. You're coming with us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So uh, Rush wasn't the only Canadian act lighting things up in 81. Triumph released Allied Forces on September 19th. The album would reach number 23 on the Billboard pop charts, aided by the singles Magic Power and Fight the Good Fight. I, however, love the track Fool for Your Love. history speaks for itself and they remain a legendary act in canadian rock shoot yeah love that old triumph stuff that's cool all right i finally get a turn 
So Grand Funk officially split up in 1976 with Mark Farner going solo and the rest of the band changing their name to Flint. By their breakup in 76, they had released 11 studio albums, which all charted in the U.S., with seven of those cracking the top 10. 19 charting singles, including two number one hit singles, The Locomotion, and of course, We're an American Band. People forget just how important this band was in the U.S. in the 70s. So comparatively, it's no surprise that by 1981, after finding limited success on their own, it's time to reunite the powers of Grand Funk Railroad. of a reunion because although founding member Don Brewer is back on the drums, original bass player Mel Schatcher opts out of the reunion. Famous record executive Irving Azoff puts it all together on his Full Moons record label, and the result is 1981's Grand Funk Lives. It's too late for Grand Funk, though. It's the lowest charting Grand Funk album up to that point. It reaches 149 in the U.S., and it will be the last charting album the band ever ever releases i had no idea they put an album out in 81 that tells you how little i knew about neither did anybody else but that's tough you know because like i said you know so big in the 70s Mm -hmm. and then by 81 it's just again you know this is another band that is not going to survive the mtv era yeah for sure uh tell you what an absolutely killer rock album would be released in september of 81 the michael schenker group would wow fans with the msg album Produced by Ron Nevison and featuring a personnel of Gary Barden on vocals, Shanker on guitar, Paul Raymond on keys, Chris Glenn on bass, and Cozy Powell on drums, it's pretty obvious you're going to have a great audio result.
While this album is regarded as MSG's finest hour by many fans, the album went seriously over budget while being made and financially crippled the band for years to come. Wow. That's wild. Again, that's another one of them bands, Tough Times. Yep. Here's one. This is this is an up-and-coming story. I like this one. This is a band that forms in the late 70s, but after a few member and name changes, Kix would emerge as a blue-collar East Coast answer to what's starting to happen on the L.A. Sunset Strip. They gain a huge following in and around Baltimore, and they do it the old-fashioned way by playing a lot of shows and establishing themselves as a must-see up-and-coming act in the area. It's this reputation and a rabid fan base that gets them the attention of Atlantic Records, who would hook them up with famed Sabbath sound engineer Tom Allum, mm. who had just begun his producing career by working with Judas Priest and Def Leppard. The result is the 1981 self-titled debut album by Kicks. <laughs> album doesn't chart anywhere or sell very well, but it lays a great foundation for a long career. After the album is released, Kix goes out on the road and plays non-stop for over a year, continuing to grow their reputation as an extremely talented band with high-energy live shows. Yeah, they're one of the best live bands you'll ever see. Heck yeah, still to this day. Yeah, we just saw them, what, two years ago, and they, they were the pretty much the highlight of the whole festival. Yeah, we they were awesome. All right, well, the early 80s were a strange and dark time for Alice Cooper. Plagued with relapsing on alcohol and adding cocaine to his diet, Alice was living in a Twilight Zone existence. His music of the era reflected that. The blackout era for Alice Cooper was in full swing by 1981, and it yielded some interesting results. Special Forces, produced by Richard Potalar, who had worked with Three Dog Night, is a chaotic, strange masterpiece that has Alex mixing punk, new wave, horror, and militaristic contrasts. So weird. In hindsight, it's a miracle he lived through the era. Real. 
You're watching Music Television MTV, the first video music channel in full stereo sound. If you're not listening to MTV in stereo, you're only getting half the picture. To get the full sound potential, call your local cable company for a stereo hookup into your FM receiver. Why settle for only half the sound picture when you can have it all? Music Television MTV. Can Indiana Jones escape from the forces of evil? Can he survive 13 fiendish situations? Will Indy make it all the way? Find out in Atari's Raiders of the Lost Ark adventure game. It's diabolically difficult. It's mysterious. It's never the same twice. And it's only from Atari. What is going on? You know, I picked these break return songs just because I know what reaction I'm going to get out of you. Um, <laughs> the 80s became a decade marked by numerous hits that came from movie soundtracks. Oh, yeah. One of the most popular was this one, Arthur's Theme by Christopher Cross. The song would reach number one in October of 1981, and it would stay there for three weeks. It would also be Christopher Cross's last big hit after success with songs such as Sailing and Ride Like the Wind. Oh, boy. I did love Arthur. Christopher though. Cross. Yeah. That is something, though. You know, you think of 81, and that's starting to take off throughout the 80s. You know, music soundtracks would be so huge. Yeah, for sure. And if you're going to talk about soundtracks, you got to talk about the movies that go with them. So you ready to find out the uh, top 10 movies in 1981? Let's do it. All right. So at number 10, one of my favorites from being young when VCRs finally came out, Time Bandits. Such a weird movie. It is a weird movie, but I loved it when yeah. I was young. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. And number nine, The Four Seasons. Is that about the band? I don't know. I don't know I'm either. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and number eight, For Your Eyes Only. That's got to be James Bond, right? Yes. I love sure. that stuff. Uh, number seven, Chariots of Fire. Oh, that's a f- famous soundtrack on that. Too. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dun, that's... Dun, 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 dun. No more singing. Oh, and number six, oh, here's a movie that everyone should love, The Cannonball Run. Bridget Bardot in a jumpsuit. I almost, you know, you put that movie, if I had to put a list of like my top ten favorite movies of all time, I'd have a hard time not putting that one in the top ten. I love The Cannonball Run so much. All those movies. Mm-hmm. At number five, man, there were some great movies in 81. Number five, it's Stripes. Yeah, it's a great movie. Oh, I love that movie. Bill Murray, mm-hmm. kick ass. Number four, we talked about the song. Here's the movie, Arthur. Yeah, hilarious movie. I always like the comparisons to Ace Fraley back in the day to Arthur. It's pretty dead on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number three, kind of like nowadays, the superhero movies are big. None bigger than Superman Part 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two movie of 1981, On Golden Pond. <laughs> Wake up. The number one movie in America in 1981 is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah, that's better. That's much better. I love that. (laughs) Other notable films released in 1981 in American Werewolf in London. That's an awesome movie. I love that. The Evil Dead, Mm -hmm. Shoot Yeah, Clash of the Titans. Like I said, they had action figures and everything. Mm -hmm. Dragon Slayer, that's a good one. Escape from New York. That's a great one. Oh, I love that stuff. Excalibur. Friday the 13th, Part 2, which is the first appearance of Jason. Yep. Uh, the Incredible Shrinking Woman. That movie freaked me out as a kid. Yeah? Yeah. 
this is a movie I had to wait till I was older to watch, but boy, was it worth it. <laughs> Porky's. Yeah, a classic. Uh, Taps. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> What's Taps? Taps, the one with uh, Tom Cruise and Sean Penn. It's like at a military academy, and the students like take over the academy and they basically hold themselves hostage. Huh. You haven't seen Taps? I don't think so. Oh, you need to watch it. It's, check great. That it's a great out. movie. All right, also released in 81 was Halloween 2. Mm-hmm. And... Maybe, I don't know, this is another one I'd always have to put up there because I always loved this one growing up, the movie Heavy Metal. Yeah. Talk about an awesome soundtrack. Well, and also as a kid, you could see uh, animated bare tits. That's right. (laughs) How awesome was that? Yeah. And if you haven't watched this movie in a long time, go ahead and watch it because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff like you might not have picked up in this movie when you were younger that you would totally appreciate now as an adult. That's pretty cool. And the Don Felder tune on that... uh, the Don oh, yeah, Felder tune on the soundtrack, yeah, heavy metal. And there's another song. He, he does two songs on there, I think. Mm-hmm. And the other song is All of Me or something like that. I can't remember. It's really good, too. Yeah. And maybe Sammy Hagar's Finest Hour. Mm. Okay. I like that song. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, oh, I'll take the as, solo stuff. As far as Sammy Hagar's standards go, I think it's a pretty damn good song. Sure. All right, so we're into October. This is an interesting story. Uh, on October 9th, when a then-unknown prince opened up for the Rolling Stones on the first of two nights in L.A. in 81, the crowd threw beer cans at him and booed him off the stage within the first 20 minutes of his set. Wow. He came on the stage wearing nothing but bikini briefs and a trench coat. That'll do it. <laughs> he fucking certainly got a tense and Fucking attention. prince, man. <laughs> Bikini briefs and a trench coat. What a guy. Well, he certainly put himself I don't understand why they're throwing beer cans at me. Let me rip this guitar solo. Yeah, just play your guitar. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about the new wave of British heavy metal on this episode, part one and part two, but not all the UK metal bands are invading America in 1981. So while Maiden and Priest, which I've been told Priest are, yeah, kind of part of, kind of not part of the new wave of British heavy metal, but while those guys are dominating in the US, somehow Saxon manages to miss the wave. While being virtually unknown in the States, in the UK, they are just as, if not more popular than all their top European metal contemporaries. They released two albums in 1980, which reached number 5 and number 11, respectively, on the UK album charts. And while they're top of the pops in England, they're not even scratching the top 200 in the US. And it's too bad, because a lot of the world is missing out while Saxon is releasing some of the greatest metal albums of all time, and 1981's Denim and Leather is no exception. Further into this, I've come to the conclusion as to why Saxon fell short on a world stage compared to other European metal bands. Even though they had early 80s U.S. exposure opening for ACDC and Rush. 
So check this out. Judas Priest, Columbia Records. Iron Maiden, EMI. Def Leppard and Motorhead, Mercury. Saxon, Career Records. Well, they were like just a British label. I mean, although French. A lot, oh, is it French? They're yeah. French, yeah. They, they were the, they, but they housed a lot of those new wave of British heavy metal bands. But not, not so the much in the U.S. Yeah. yeah, so all the ones, the, Ma- the Maiden, the Priest, the Def Leppard, the Motorhead, they're all doing good, but they're on these good American labels. That's true. So while these guys are, but again, they're killing it in the U.K. Yeah. You know, they, they are, I mean, they're going to come up again. I'm going to, before this show is through, I'm going to prove just how huge Sax- Saxon actually is in 1981. Cool. So on uh, October 27th, this is an interesting story. Home taping is killing music. A slogan of a 1980s anti-copyright infringement propaganda campaign by the British Phonographic Industry, or BPI, mm-hmm. a British music industry trade group. With the rise in cassette recorder popularity, the BPI feared that the ability of private citizens to record music from the radio onto cassettes would cause a decline in record sales. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. The logo consisting of a Jolly Roger formed from the silhouette of a compact cassette also included the words, and it's illegal. Yeah. So, this uh, is the beginning of the fear piracy. of piracy. Yeah. Yep. It's the first Napster cassette tapes. Yeah, all the way back in 81. But you know what? As a little kid, I totally did that. Oh, totally. You yeah. know, I would listen to the top 40 on, you know, Casey Case from Top 40, mm-hmm. and I would sit with my fingers on the, the record and the play button because yeah. he had to push them both at the same time and wait and be like, all right, they're going to play some cool rock. And they'd be like, oh, no, not that song. And then you'd listen to it. You'd wait for the next one. Or you'd say, up next, we're going to play the new song by Motley Crue. And you'd be like, oh, yeah, get your fingers ready. you know. And you'd listen for your favorite bands. Yeah. And then you could make yourself little mixtapes. But it was never as good as the real thing because no. you always had the DJ talking over right. it. Much like we do here. So nobody yeah. <laughs> nobody steals our clips, you know. Right. And, and, you know, of course, the, even nowadays, the songs we play on the podcast, we intentionally talk over them a little well, bit. Yeah. Even if we do do full songs, because the entire idea of this podcast, and we hope you guys, like even today, go back and look at 1981 and say, wow, I'm going to go buy some of this music. Sure. Because that's really that's what, what the Decibel Geek has always been about. We just want to turn you guys on to awesome music, and we want you to go buy it. Buy it, buy it. No matter where you get it, just go buy it. Keep rock and roll alive. For sure. All right. So I hope you're ready for this. Now, Chris, last week you mm-hmm. introduced us to Sirith Ungol. Yeah. Sirith Ungol. And uh, that was pretty damn great. Yeah. Because I had to check out more of that, and that's pretty awesome. And I've never heard of that band before. Brad Thomason confirmed that. He, he totally to yeah. yeah, He said he Brad. wasn't wearing the T-shirt though. I, I totally know that band. Of course he does. Yeah. So you know, with you introducing us to that, I wanted to find a cool, weird one too. And with weird as the criteria, <laughs> yeah. we are about to hit the jackpot in 1981. Let me tell you about Rocky Erickson. He was a founding member of the 13th Floor Elevators, the first ever psychedelic rock band. These guys influenced people like Janis Joplin, the Jefferson Airplane, and the Grateful Dead. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. (laughs) But these guys, man, when you're talking about psychedelic rock, they took it seriously by doing lots and lots of LSD. During a performance at the 1968 World's Fair in San Antonio, Rocky flips out. He's acting all whacked out, speaking a language that nobody can understand until he eventually gets hauled off by authorities. What an exciting show that must have been. Yeah. Then it's off to a Texas insane asylum for a year of electroshock therapy. 
Shortly after his release, Rocky gets busted with a single marijuana cigarette. Three more years of electroshock therapy for Rocky. For For weed. For weed. Wow. So at this point, he spent a lot of time in a Texas mental sane asylum Mm -hmm. in the early 80s. It's crazy. I can't understand why this guy would turn out strange. So when he finally gets released again, he goes back to music with more of a hard rock edge. But things don't really pick up for him until he meets up with Stu Cook of CCR, of all people. (laughs) So he would help Rocky release his first album in 1980 and also 1981's The Evil One. Great songwriter and performer, weird as hell. I think I heard that there's a documentary about him, Alan. I'm sure. I need to find that. What a story. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Thrown in the first ever psychedelic rock band, thrown in mental asylums, writing songs about weird, weird things. Should we do like a The Insane Side of Rocky Erickson episode? That's all of them. That's the whole catalog, yeah. But I mean... Seriously, there's some cool stuff in there. I really, really love that song, Bloody Hammer. Yeah, I'm going to check out And more. he's got some other really cool songs. And you know what? He's back around today. I was watching something on him on the YouTube, and it was him and Billy Gibbons was playing along with him. And he's mm-hmm. an older guy now, yeah. but he's playing them songs. He's sounding good. Huh. You know, so the guy ended up turning it around and doing all right for himself. And I think you guys owe it to yourself. Check out a little Rocky Erickson, especially if you like things that are a little bit weirder. Yeah. All right. Well, metal history would be changed on October 28, 1981. There's James Hatfield responding to an ad placed in the L.A. newspaper, The Recycler, by drummer Lars Ulrich, would meet the Danish transplant and form a decades-long partnership now known as Metallica. Shit, yeah. Change in the world in 1981. That's a huge, huge pivot point in the history of the music we love. And a direct result of the new wave of British heavy metal. Absolutely. Huge fans of that stuff. Yep. That's true, yeah. It's it's amazing the early effects yeah. of the new wave of British heavy metal. It's not been going on for that long, but it's already taken such a huge hold that it's influencing American bands to form, mm-hmm. and some damn good ones. Starting right there with a perfect example, it's Metallica. Yeah. All right, well, that's awesome news for fans of metal in 1981. Here's something else for you. In the early 80s, Black Sabbath is enjoying a refreshing resurgence with their brand new lead singer, Ronnie James Dio. Their previous year's release, Heaven and Hell, their first with Dio, is the band's most successful release since 1975. Now, although they're enjoying renewed success, things are far from perfect, as longtime drummer Bill Ward quits the band after the Blue Oyster Cult co-headlined Black and Blue tour and is replaced by Vinnie Apice. 
Believing that he is the reason for Sabbath's refound success, Dio is offered a solo contract by Warner Brothers Mm -hmm. while he's still a member of the band. And Warner Brothers still represents Sabbath. Wow. And drugs. Lots and lots of drugs. (laughs) Despite all this, they're still able to create the 1981 masterpiece, Mob Rules. album's a little quicker, a little more up-tempo than most Sabbath albums, but producer Martin Birch had just finished working with Iron Maiden on Killers, so that would probably explain a little something about that. This would be the last album in his long partnership with Sabbath as he would afterwards become Maiden's go-to guy. Sabbath would spend the next year and a half on the road supporting the album before Dio would take Warner Brothers up on their offer and take Vinny with him. Amazing metal album cover for sure. Yeah, and that and the, the title track is just uh, oh, it's, it's it's one of the best things so the good. band ever wrote. In my yeah, opinion. totally. Yeah, I love it. Got big plans for Dio fans next week. Yes, we do. You guys will enjoy that a lot. Stick around for it. Speaking of Black Sabbath, it's time to check in with their former lead vocalists. Now, when we last left our hero, he was biting the head off a dove. Now he's back with his second studio album, Diary of a Madman. The whole team from Blizzard of Oz is back, including producer Max Norman, drummer Lee Kerslake, bass player Bob Daisley, and of course the guitar magazine's best new talent of 1981, Randy Rhodes. Mm -hmm. This album is a master class in 80s metal guitar wizardry, and it cements the legend of Randy Rhodes that will live on way longer than he does. This album has it all and is, in my opinion, one of those rare, perfect albums without a bad song on the entire thing. Slake, still a little pissed over becoming known as Ozzy's backing band, instead of being in a band with Ozzy called Blizzard of Oz, feel like they're being shafted by Ozzy's manager slash wife, the famous Sharon. 
and they feel she's not giving them their fair share after they've contributed so much to the writing of the songs, especially Bob Daisley, who claims to have contributed the most in the music and the lyric writing on the first two Ozzy albums out of anybody in the band. Mm. He could take the hit to his pride, but not to his wallet. So both he and Lee leave the band before the album's released. In retaliation, any mention of the two musicians or their contributions are scrubbed from the album. Instead, featured in the credits and photos are their replacements, Tommy Aldridge and Rudy Sarzo. After Diary is released, the band is off on a European tour, and if you didn't believe me about the power of Saxon in the UK in 1981... Ozzy opens for them in England. Wow. Yeah. They play a handful of gigs, and then Ozzy Osbourne has a big old mental breakdown that makes the band cancel the rest of the European leg of the tour. They pull it together for the legendary Diary of a Madman U.S. tour, where things get really crazy. But that's a tale for another year in review. Yeah, for sure. Wild times for Sabbath and Ozzy in 81. Yeah, it's it's kind of remarkable that... You know, Ozzy probably put out his most iconic solo work in the middle of a mental breakdown. Like, I mean, he, I don't know. From what I've always heard, Sharon pretty much just drug him out of squalor yeah. to get him going again. After yeah, because Sabbath. he got his money from Sabbath and he thought, well, this is it. You know, I'm going to spend all this money. And she goes, what, he's in L.A. in a hotel room and there's rotten pizza boxes well, a lot and of stuff about beer him, bottles and him going through major depression after, yeah. after being was he booted out of sabbath i guess pretty much yeah, yeah. i think they were like fed up with him because they brought him back and gave him a chance but it just wasn't yeah. working out and then he was going through a divorce with his first wife and yeah. they had a kid together the little kid on the cover of diary of madman that's ozzy's son lewis from his first wed- uh, first marriage really no yeah. i didn't know that me neither till we do the research it's pretty wild You want to talk about Wild? Well, here we go. The moment that a lot of us have been waiting for. Here, let me set the table for you. So, in 19... Yeah, the table (laughs) with a candle on it and weird chairs around it. In 1978, while Kiss is working on Dynasty, the Bee Gees are the biggest band in the world. While they're in the studio creating Unmask, Blondie's Heart of Glass is the number one song in the world. So, the band that was known for doing their own thing against all odds, proud to be who they were almost to a fault, had begun to try to follow the lead of more popular bands. So, I'm sure that the KISS fans were very excited to hear the news that instead of following more trends, the new album would be, and I quote, hard and heavy from start to finish, straight on rock that will knock your socks off. I mean, what a great way to debut on album their new heavy-hitting drummer, the Fox, Eric Carr. And after seeing the success of what former opening acts like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden were finding, a hard and heavy new album for 1981 was a no-brainer. So they go to Ace's home studio and come up with some demos, but they don't feel great about the songs. The feeling is, is that in order to recapture the magic of Destroyer, they would need Bob Ezrin. Well, guess what? Bob Ezrin's available, and also on a lot of drugs. And he pitches an idea that will win over all the longtime KISS critics and show the world that this band should be viewed as a respected, intellectual, musical genius. What KISS needs is a concept album. Mm.
So is it a coincidence that The Wall by Pink Floyd is the biggest album on the planet at the time of the recording of The Elder? I'm sure it's a total coincidence. Hard and heavy all the way through, yeah. start to finish, rock your socks off. Apparently, the recording was a big old clusterfuck, too, where Gene and Paul are working independently in different Ontario studios and sending tapes to Ezrin, who isn't leaving his house. Instead, he sends back notes and gives nobody any idea of what he's putting together. Can you imagine that? Mm. Creating an album without being able to hear any of the progress? Yeah, it's a strange setup. Very strange. Ace Fraley, man, he's completely out of fucks to give. And, <laughs> and poor Eric Carr. Oh, man. This guy, he's in no position to say anything. Just do as he's told while playing a lot of new wave of British heavy metal cassette tapes for Gene and Paul. <laughs> Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. What a confusing time for him. Yeah. So I guess in the end, the result is Kiss's greatest failure. For so many that held on through the Phantom, through the Lunchboxes, the solo albums, the disco album, the pop album, for so many of them, the Elder was the last straw. Kiss traded their loyal fans for critical acclaim, but did they get it? I don't know. Let's go to the longtime Kiss haters themselves, Rolling Stone magazine, who had this to say. What could be less promising at this stage of the game than a concept album by Kiss? <laughs> After having written off Kiss as pure pap for eight-year-olds, who even wants to think about taking them seriously? Yet their new songs are catchy, the performance <laughs> is respectable, and despite its concept, music from The Elder is better than anything the group has recorded in years. Oh, boy. But let me ask you, Kiss, was it worth it? Not at all. Not at all. You traded in all your fans for a halfway nice review from Rolling Stone. Who really didn't give a damn about them anyway. No, because ultimately Rolling Stone's like, yeah, this is the best thing they ever did, but they still are Kiss, and we still hate them. We still say they stink. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, that's a total misstep. Yeah. I, I, I won't I, – and I'm not – everybody knows that, knows this show. I don't, I'm not a fan of the album, but I still wouldn't erase it from their history. It's It's an interesting – it's it's an interesting thing in their history. Yeah. Um, Gene and Paul do everything they can to minimize it as much as they can. But uh, I know there's a lot of you that listen to this that that they this may be your favorite Kiss album. I don't know about favorite. It's got some redeeming moments on it. But here's the cool thing: if you're a Decibel Geek VIP, as we mentioned on the mm-hmm. top of the show, our whole latest episode of Torpedo Dudes is dedicated almost entirely to music from the elders yeah, so if you want hour. the whole solid hour of talking about kiss become a decibel geek vip and check us out on torpedo dudes our kiss podcast totally worth it get it for a buck and in the news actress natalie wood drowns after apparently falling overboard during a sailing excursion with her husband robert wagner and actor christopher walken Mystery has surrounded her death for years, with there being claims of both Walken and Wagner being responsible, despite it being ruled an accident. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, intrigue around that. Yeah, that's weird, because all three of those big stars out on the boat by themselves. Who the hell knows what happened? It's it's a crazy story. All right, so here's one that when we decided we were going to do 1981, I was really excited to talk about, because this is absolutely one of my all-time favorite albums. Now, it didn't take long for the new kings of the L.A. Sunset Strip to have the songs for their first album. Motley Crue had come together with Nikki Six, Tommy Lee, Mick Mars, and Vince Neil less than a year before they found themselves at Hit City Studios West in L.A., self-producing their debut album, Too Fast for Love. 
This was done because their rabid local fan base demanded it. Even without major label support, they sell over 20,000 copies. The early influences the band shined through on this debut bands like Cheap Trick, Queen, Aerosmith, and even the Sex Pistols. It's another perfect album without a bad song out of the entire bunch. You just can't deny the youthful energy of songs like Starry Eyes, On With The Show, Too Fast For Love, Take Me To The Top, Piece Of Your Action, and Live Wire. Listening to this album will always make me feel young. It's the success of their self-titled self-release that will spark a bidding war between record companies who want to sign the band. Electra will eventually win their services. They bring in Roy Thomas Baker to rework the album for mass release, but it isn't an instant success. But they're on the cusp of leading a rock and roll revolution emanating from Hollywood, California. Yep. That's the beginning right there, I think. And the original album was mixed by uh, Overload. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Overload. We're going to call him that from now on. Michael <laughs> I love it. All right, so uh, this is a big story. On uh, November 30th, porn star John Holmes is arrested on fugitive charges, charged with the Laurel Canyon murders on uh, December 9th. Four unsolved murders that occurred in Los Angeles. They happened in July. It is assumed that five people were targeted to be killed in the known drug house of the Wonderland gang, three of whom were present. All three of them, Ron Lanius, Billy DeVarrell, and Joy Miller, along with accomplice Barbara Richardson, die from extensive blood force trauma injuries. Crazy. Only Lanius's wife, Susan, survived the attack, allegedly masterminded by organized crime figure and nightclub owner Eddie Nash. He owned the Starwood where Van Halen Oh, yeah. Out. He, his henchmen, Gregory Diles, and porn star John Holmes were at various times arrested, tried, and acquitted for their involvement in the murders. A lot of people think there was a lot of money involved in that. LAPD detectives were on record saying the crime scene was bloodier and more gruesome than that of the Tate-LaBianca murders from the Manson clan. Wow. That's, yeah, that's the, high standard to top. The backstory of this goes back to June. On June 29th, 1981, Lanius DeVero, Lind, and McCourt committed a brutal home invasion and armed robbery at Eddie Nash's home, resulting in Nash's bodyguard, Gregory DeWitt Diles, being shot and injured. Nash suspected that John Holmes had been involved as he had been at his house three times on the morning of the attack to leave the sliding door open. Oh, wow. Nash sent Dials to retrieve Holmes for questioning. Dials supposedly spotted Holmes walking around Hollywood wearing one of Nash's rings and brought him back. Scott Thorson, Liberace's former bodyguard who was in Nash's house to buy drugs, claimed he witnessed Holmes being tied to a chair and repeatedly punched until he revealed the assailant's names. Golly. uh, And and if that story from that robbery sounds familiar to you, it was played out in the movie Boogie Nights. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly where that came from. Wow. What a waste of such a glorious schlong. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) John Holmes was a... And if you want to see a cool... um, 
Boogie Nights porno. Boogie Nights is more of more of like a it's like an offshoot takeoff of it, but if more of a direct um, dramatization of it is there's a movie uh, called Wonderland that Val Kilmer plays John Holmes in. Oh, it wow. bombed terribly, yeah. but it's a really interesting shot. Val Kilmer does a good so job. So it's the more realistic yeah. version of what really happened? Yeah. And you know, if, if it's accurate, John Holmes is a real fuck-off. Right? Yeah, Just that's not, what not I always Not a reliable guy Well, I mean, he was a big porn star. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I've got this. Get famous for a big dick. I mean, I've got this. Yeah. What more do I need? But like all, he just mooched drugs off people and yeah. basically just was a pain in the ass for everybody around hmm. him. But what a glorious schlong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I guess this is my last one for 1981 and what a way to go out. You know, this is a story and we've talked about it so many times. Mm-hmm. When you've got that huge hit album, you know, it's it's hard to come back from that. Yeah. You know, ACDC is in that exact situation because, as we all know, they're coming off of Back in Black. Yeah, one of the which biggest is, albums in history. In all of history. All of all genres. That's a hell of a lot of pressure. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden the... Record company's going, all right, you know, we're ready for Back in Black 2. Get to it, you know, let's go. And they're like, well, damn, you know, how are, where do we even begin to think about trying to top this massive phenomenon of an album? Mm-hmm. So they're back in there with uh, John Mutt Lang. But th- what they say about Mutt Lang is like he's real slow and methodical of all mm-hmm. things, which is okay when they're doing Back in Black because, I mean, Back in Black, they're not really in too much of a hurry to jump right back yeah. into it. They're kind of easing back in. So they got the time. They take the time. But now they're under pressure to hurry up and put yeah. out Back in Black, they too. Got money. And they got the money, and they want more money, and the record company wants their money, and everybody mm-hmm. wants, let's go, let's go, move, move, move. Problem is, Mutt Lang is trying to match the sound quality of Back in Black, which is a pretty tough thing to do because mm. Back in Black is a phenomenally yeah, produced album, produce especially it for its time. You yeah. know, yeah, you can't beat that. So they end up trying like a whole bunch of different studios <laughs> and doing a whole bunch of different things. And I think in the end, they end up in a warehouse recording with the mobile studio somewhere mm. in Paris. And but it takes forever for them to get it together, and they never really feel like they quite put everything they had into it. Like the whole thing was kind of rushed. Yeah. And I think in the music it kind of shows because it's definitely not as strong as previous ACDC albums, although there are some pretty kick-ass tunes on it nonetheless.
You know, you wouldn't think so because you think, okay, Back in Black is ACDC's number one album. Mm-hmm. But ACDC's Back in Black never went to number one on the U.S. album chart. Actually, for those about to rock, is ACDC's first number one U.S. album. Hmm. Even though generally, yeah, because yeah, that's the way it comes. Off the huge album, the hype, and then, of course, the next album is going to do pretty good. And then it's a matter of whether people love it or not. Right. You know, that's kind of like so many bands we've talked about over the years. Skid Row is a perfect example of that. The hype off the first mm-hmm. album makes Slave to the Grind so huge, but Slave to the Grind is so damn good right. that it's got that staying power with it. Gotcha. Where this one, you know, it's... It's the carrying over of the fans from that huge album mm-hmm. that everybody buys the new one. Half of them love it and stay on. The other half go, eh. Yeah. Well, and your song pick, I got to wonder if John Holmes was inspiring for that song pick. Quite possibly. Yeah. I always thought Quite that possibly. song would be great for a Viagra commercial. <laughs> it just makes too much sense. Yeah, it does. Why but, wouldn't they? Yeah. How could you afford that song, though? Uh, so let's go over some of the births and deaths of 1981. And, and you put this list together, and I thought you went an interesting route with the births. We usually talk about well, celebrities. Yeah, because like it's 1981, so I think what I've realized by looking at this, because, yeah, normally we do the births and we talk about people that were born in 1981. Right. But since 1981, everybody's famous. Right. Like this list would be 10 miles long. You right. know, like you could talk about athletes, you could talk about musicians, you could talk about, you know, movie stars, you know, everything. There's because if you look at like a, a 70s episode, you get a list of people that were born and go, okay, cool. You know, these mm-hmm. are a good list of famous people that we would mention. Right. You look at the list from 1981 and it's massive. Yeah. There's just more famous people now. Right. That's so true. it's too much to list. So let's talk about the births. Of some of the greatest bands coming out at this time. Okay. So 1981 is the birth of Tesla. Mm-hmm. That's good news. Mm-hmm. The Killer Dwarfs. I'm down with that. Rough Cut mm-hmm. is born in 1981. Steeler. That's a great one. Our mm-hmm. good friends Rick Fox. Ron Keel. And Ron Keel. Black and Blue is born in 1981. Tommy Thayer. It's Honeymoon Sweet. Mm-hmm. You know, the Canadians, would they'd be mad if we didn't mention that. <laughs> Icon is born in 1981. The Butthole Surfers, Merciful Fate, Flotsam and Jetsam, Green Jello, Ministry, The Beastie Boys, Anthrax, Pantera, Slayer, and of course Metallica. Wow. All born in 1981. What a year. So I guess we talk about deaths. There's, you know, there's some pretty big ones. We talked about Natalie Wood, the boxer Joe Lewis. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think... Yeah, we got to talk Bill Haley, Bill yeah. Haley in the Comets. You know, he was First a rock and roll star. That's right. And I think the biggest death is uh, from 1981 is clearly Bob Marley. Yeah, uh, taken way too soon. Yeah, and you know, died right in his prime. And it was a, it was cancer, right? Yeah. And like I think it, the story was something like he had like a foot like a foot problem. Like he hurt himself in a soccer game or something. And like it developed into like this horrible infection, and then cancer sprung from that or something. But then I sent you a link earlier this week. Yeah. I don't know. This is obviously total the tinfoil hat conspiracy stuff. But there's like a guy that claimed that um, he like was an agent of the CIA, and he somehow injected Bob Marley in the foot with the cancer or something like that. And like he would like the CIA killed Bob Marley because he was a threat to American life. 
kind of like the way John Lennon was. Yeah. Or like Bob Marley was. Yeah. Oh no, the marijuana cigarettes. I mean, I don't, I don't put much stock. They in rear it. their ugly head again. But I mean, but Bob Marley. I mean, if if you were around in those days, I mean, the guy was revolutionary. Sure. And, you know, I mean, even even us, you know, and, and we're hard rockers and metalheads. But you know, Bob Marley. Yeah, he was a reggae dude. Mm-hmm. But he also rocked, man. I mean, he had he has Les Paul. He's up there playing guitar. He's playing reggae, but he's playing more of a rock version mm-hmm. of reggae. It was like the first rock rage, reggae kind of fusion. And I think that's what made him more accessible to people from other parts of the world sure. that never listened to reggae, never thought about yeah. it, never knew about it. And here's this guy up there with an electric guitar playing reggae. That kind of rocks. Yeah. I can get behind that. And, uh, I, even I can listen to Bob Marley and dig it at certain sure. times. Um, you know, of course, I went through my Bob Marley phase in college when I was smoking lots yeah. of reefer. I was like, you know, the typical stoner white boy that wanted to get into reggae. But I will say this. To this day, if, if I'm having a bad day or something, I can always put on No Woman, No Cry live. Yeah. And that song will always pick up my spirits. That's, oh, just, yeah. that's such a It's such a great, inspiring song. And, you know, I just... You got to mention Bob Marley when it comes to 1981. Yeah, because that was a huge, big thing in 1981. And it's a bummer we lost him because who knows, you know, what else he could have done in his career, how much harder he could have rocked. Maybe maybe in eight, by 88, he would have been putting out a metal album. I don't know about that. You got to fusion the reggae and <laughs> the metal. metal. <laughs> Thrash reggae. Hmm. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, sublime. The way uh, 81 closes out like they do all years, you have the New Year's Rock and Eve lineup for yeah. uh, for TV. They always have the Dick Clark's New, Year, New Year's Rock and Eve. And so, who are the big bands for this 81? This was uh, the 10th annual one on ABC and appearances by Four Tops, The Four Tops, Rick Springfield, Barry Manilow, Alabama, and Rick James, bitch. Wow. Yeah, so I've got the uh, the last pick. Before today. we get into that, mm-hmm. I'd like to say something about 1981 because we've done both weeks now back to back, and you know what I find really cool about not, not just 1981 but the 90 but the but the 80s altogether is that all genres of music are really big. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about the country music, how mm-hmm. big that is in 81 and the pop music and, you know, just the different, the rock and the metal is coming up now. And it's like every genre of music is strong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like nowadays where like, this is up, this is down, this yeah. is up, this is down in the eighties, especially the early eighties. And then we're going to see with the advent of MTV, maybe country gets pushed down a little bit. Yeah. But at this time, at the early 80s, I guess late 70s, early 80s, yeah. everything is big. Very healthy time for music. Yeah. yeah, and it's all diverse. And it doesn't matter if you're Bob Marley, if you're Alabama, if you're Iron Maiden, or, mm-hmm. well, I guess it matters if you're Kiss. But, <laughs> That's the lesson every, learned. But everybody else is doing pretty <laughs> damn good for themselves. Right. So uh, I've got the last pick today, and uh, I know any of you that know me personally are probably like, well, when are you going to play Thin Lizzy? Because they put it out about 1981. You know us. You yeah. know we're going to. I specifically, doing my picks, I was like, <laughs> I know there's certain bands that Chris is going to want because I went first, so I left the ACDC. I mean, I left the Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. I left the Ramones, mm-hmm. and I definitely... Left you thin, Lizzie. Yeah, it was three of my favorite artists. Uh, so, with Alice, as with Alice Cooper, 
Thin Lizzy was also going through a difficult time in 81. Heroin abuse had truly taken hold of Phil Lineup and Scott Gorham's lives, and the newer guitarist, Snowy White, was having a tough time integrating himself into the band's sound. However, even with all this turmoil, Thin Lizzy, with the recent addition of keyboardist Darren Wharton and producer Chris Sangaridis, put out an awesome album with Renegade, released on November 15th. This is a bit of a controversial record for the band, with critics and fans being relatively split about their opinions of it. I'll admit that there are a few clunkers on this album, but the good stuff is great. We're going to play out this week with a track that still had some of that old Lizzie magic. This is No One Told Him, and we'll see you next week. Support the artists. Buy the music. He listened closely. Listen while I tell you why he loves you and why he misses mostly. It's pointless. It's pretending. He's got a broken heart. A broken heart that needs mending. You didn't tell him. You didn't want to see him again. You didn't tell him. You didn't want to see him again. He's gone crazy. He's reckless. Without you, baby. He's helpless. It's deadly. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.